Hi everyone. Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. Of course, I'm your host, Tasha Hunter. Today, we're speaking to Darlena McHenry, my friend, my mentor, probably one of my angels as well. Darlena is the founder of Black and Money Recovery. She tells me that her family struggled with money issues for generations. They experienced bouts of abundance as well as bouts of poverty. Her father was an absolutely brilliant businessman that struggled to maintain his wealth because of generational curses and racism. This is no surprise, right? She started the Black and Money Recovery, Black and Debtors Anonymous, Black and Under Earners Anonymous after realizing that she could not heal in spaces created by and for white people. So today she's gonna speak to us about what it means to be financially literate and and really financial literacy within the black community. And I've just learned so, so, so much from her and was so excited that this is her first podcast and I was honored to be the first person to interview her. And uh, here you go. Carolina, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we are talking about uh, financial literacy specific to the black community and who better to talk to about that than you. Uh, if you could please tell listeners uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're from and just whatever you want to share. Okay. So um, I'm from the heart of the South, Mississippi and Tennessee. That's where I grew up. And then of course I graduated from high school and I moved to California and since then, I've traveled around the world. Um, I've lived in Florida as well, but most of my life has been spent here in California. Okay. And regarding just, you know, your pro professional um, background, if you can tell listeners a little bit about yourself as it relates to that. Okay. I'm a psychologist by profession. I'm a school psychologist. That's where I spent the majority of my time. I've been a teacher, a counselor, school psychologist, as well as an administrator. So I've been in and around schools for quite some time, about 40 years, as a matter of fact. That is so, so, so impressive. So regarding financial literacy, here's a couple of things that I wrote down. When, when I hear the term financial literacy, for me, I just have to simplify it and it means how we earn it, how we invest it, how we save it, how we grow it. <laughs> um, but from your background and the work that you do, what does, what does that mean, financial literacy for, for all of our listeners? To add to your definition and say how we spend it. Oh, yes. Okay, because money is a resource. Money is a resource. There's a lot of energy around this particular resource. So when we get money, how do we use it? And people like to say, well, I don't have a lot of money. So that's not an issue for me. But the truth of the matter is we all have resources. We're consumers. Mm -hmm. And so whatever money we have, there are people who have that same amount of money and uh, some use it very effectively and very efficiently. And then there are others who don't. And then there are people with lots of money. And of course, some use that very effectively and very efficiently. And then there's some people with lots of money 
who don't use it uh, effectively and efficiently. So our goal with Black and Money Recovery is just to look at the money issues with people of African descent, which is global. And so if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to launch into that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so Black people throughout the globe have been traumatized and terrorized ever since they first encountered other cultures. You can go back to Africa where, you know, they would invite the African kings in the 11th and 12th century to the courts of Europe and they would bring gold, they would bring diamonds, they would bring precious metals. And then they would be given trinkets, plastic, things that didn't have any lasting value. And so the Africans considered that to be like a friendly exchange to get to know each other, to share ideas. And the European was seeing that as something to be conquered, something to be taken, something to be researched. How much do they have there? And how can we get it since we have superior weapons? Mm -hmm. So from the initiation of the interaction between the two cultures, there were two different agendas. And so what you see is after 100 or 200 years, the European agenda implemented by robbing the country, uh, the continent of their wealth, dividing up groups based on ethnic groups and exploiting their resources. So Africans were separated, their, their, their money, their wealth was separated from their resources early. And because of that, they tend to devalue themselves because they didn't get the money and they're still not. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Pentium chip that we all use for computers and cell phones and you know, mobile and technology is, you know, gotten from the Congo. They get $1 for that. And then they sell it for 400. So imagine every computer chip comes from one region of the world. The chocolates that are made in Switzerland, that Switzerland are, is so popular, uh, famous for, that comes from Ghana. And it has taken almost a thousand years from Ghana to say, you can't have our cocoa beans, our cacao uh, beans anymore. We're going to make our own chocolate. Mm -hmm. So, and then when you look at the United States, we were separated. Our earnings were separated from our labor from the time we landed on this continent. Mm -hmm. We built this country. We were the largest economy in this country for the first um, hundred years of its inception. The United States is the number one economic power in the world because for 100 years they had free, or even longer than that, if you go back to 1519, for over for 300 years they had free labor and it was our labor that was free. Mm -hmm. So then you get Jim Crow, you get all of the discrimination laws. So we've been separated from our earnings and now we're trying to learn how to manage those earnings, to increase those earnings, to negotiate for what we are worth. We know that on plantations in the South, all of the skilled labor was done by the enslaved Africans. White people did nothing but ride around on horses, pointing at what needed to be done. 
as soon as the institution of slavery was abolished, all of a sudden the only people allowed into skilled trades were white. Mm -hmm. And so then black people became the laborers right. who were underpaid. Mm -hmm. And then they became the skilled tradesmen who were highly paid. Mm -hmm. And so that whole system of oppression, uh, trauma, terrorization continued. And if you look at owning property in this country, um, you know, the lynching museum shows that most of the people who were lynched, it has something to do with economics. The woman who was lynched when she was pregnant, she demanded her wages. Wow. And, you know, the men who were lynched, uh, the Oklahoma Black Wall Street, uh, it, there was a financial or an economic issue. And he said, damn, to a white man. And so all of the black businesses were burned out. They were killed because they were getting uppity and their capital was taken as a way to say to everyone else that if you try to use this American system or this capitalistic system, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to burn you out. We're going to kill you. You're going to watch your babies burn to death. So that's a lot to unpack. It is. It is. And first of all, just in, in everything that you just shared, there were a couple of things that I did not know. And for listeners, what, what struck out to me is that before you can even reach or entertain financial literacy, you need to start by educating yourself about your culture, even including your history, your, history, your culture, um, the history of the African diaspora and all the atrocities that happened there that impacts, that still continues to impact our, as a people, the global majority, the financial literacy. Absolutely. And, and I want to tell you another fact, because I think this is important. Initially, welfare was only available to white women. In the early 20th century, it was called a widow's pension. And then it was called a mother's pension. So if you were a white woman and your husband died or you were a single parent, you could apply for a mother's pension because it was, de it was determined by deservability. And so white women were considered to deserve a pension if they had a child. Black women were expected to take care of white children, to be a laundress, even to sell their breast milk and be a wet nurse because they didn't deserve a pension because they always had a way to get money by using their bodies. So black women did not have access to welfare as we know it. Mm -hmm. So as the civil rights law started to come, become an effect, you'll see the movies where the white social worker comes and inspects the house and they were making the determination that black women could get jobs and no one would ever suggest that a white woman with an infant sell her breast milk or be a wet nurse. Right. No one would ever suggest that she do somebody laundry, that she raise somebody else's children. Mm -hmm. And so you still had this mentality and this concept of deservability. Mm -hmm. So when people start talking about generations of welfare, it wasn't really until 1970 that there was a lawsuit that said 
that is arbitrary, it is capricious, it's a violation of the Bill of Rights. You cannot determine one person's deservability based on subjective matter. There has to be a universal criteria. But yet, whenever anybody mentions welfare, it's always Black women. And it's always the welfare queen and Black women taking advantage of the system. Up until 1970, it was very difficult for a Black woman to get welfare. She was expected to be somebody's maid. Wow. And the part of the anger now is now that there's a social support system for everyone that the United States has lost their maids. Their Black women are choosing to go to college. They're choosing to enter professions and there's a support system there for them to be able to do that. And that's a lot of your anger with, in terms of black women abusing the system. Still to this day, white women are the majority of the population. They are the majority of the people on social services. Wow. That's all truth and all history. And it's, it's a history and a truth that, that isn't taught in our schools. It's not a part of our textbooks, right? And, and and it's part of the reason why we as Black people remain ignorant. We have to do our, our research. We have to know our history. We have to know our history and we have to give other Black people grace. Yes. Once you understand the history, once you understand how families have been traumatized for generations, then you understand why so many of our relationships fall apart, having to do with money and a lack of trust around money and why there's so much unhealed trauma and pain there. And you have to have a space where you can come together and support each other and work on that together and know that you're not alone. I love that. Can you now, I have listened to you um, share bits of your stories um, regarding your own upbringing. If you can share as much as you feel comfortable or safe with, just talking about your earliest introduction to money, finances, math, all of that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born on a farm. Uh, my father owned a 200 acre farm, which I was born on. And then he would lease land to other people in order to grow crops. And so um, he owned the businesses on the farm Uh, We owned a grocery store. We owned a service station. He was the person that people came to when they had bonds and they needed to relinquish them early. So he would buy bonds. He provided transportation uh, because Black people were always in dilapidated uh, traveling conditions. And so we would have to actually do that for each other to visit relatives up north or for people to go up north to get jobs. Mm -hmm. And so he had about six different businesses in between 1940 and 1945, I'm sorry, and 1965, which is when I was born, he was one of the richest black men in the state of Mississippi. So he owned the 200 acre farm and he owned another one that was 40 acres. And then he had the bonds and and other kinds of um, uh, financial instruments. So early on, I mean, and that was deliberate. You know, I was born when my father was 50. And he had made the decision at 20 that he was going to be wealthy and that all of his children would be born on his land. Mm. And so basically he shaped my world. Um, You know, I never saw anything that I, if I wanted, I couldn't have. 
we didn't have a lot of interaction with white people, so we never got to envy them. Uh, we didn't, uh, so there was no one telling us what we could or could not do. And of course, he and my mother were always telling us that we could do anything we wanted to do. I and love that because you didn't have a white person next door or whatever saying, oh, honey, you can't do that. <laughs> That'll never happen. Absolutely. And so he was very deliberate about exposing us to black people who were doing things. And, um, you know, the mayor was black, the city councilman, the postmaster general, the hospital was black because they didn't allow black people into white hospitals and they died. So one of the first black hospitals, you know, that was in the area where I was born. Fannie Lou Hammer was in the area where I was born. And so uh, we lived in that cocoon and it was only gradual that we left the black middle class community. So there was a sense that we were going to do great things and have more opportunities than any other generation. So we shouldn't worry so much about the past. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that because seeing principal at my school, having a black teacher, I remember in the first grade, I actually registered myself because I was cool. five. Mm-hmm. So my father, because I kept bugging him, I kept telling him I could read and I would name the people I could read better than. I kept telling him I could add and subtract. I kept naming the people I could add and subtract better than. And he finally said, darling, go. Go with your stubborn self because I'm going to break your neck and I'm going to wind up in the penitentiary for the rest of my life or killing my daughter. Mm -hmm. They're going to send you back home. You're only five. Mm -hmm. And so he waited for me to come back home all day. And he kept saying, I can't go get her. Because if I go get her, then she's not going to stop. So I have to wait for her. Mm-hmm. And so when he came home, he said to me, well, what happened today? And I said, I went to school. He said, they didn't send you home. And I said, no. And he said, do they know you're five? And I said, no. I lied and told him I was six. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to get my hat. Get in the car. We're going to go buy you school clothes. You're going to school. Mm. and that first grade teacher, so they were asking me about my report card, and my dad backed me up. He said, you know, he and my mother had separated, and he said my mother had my birth certificate. When my teacher, and her name was Miss Peterson, and I had a chance to thank her, at that time I thought she was old, but I think she was like 20 or 21 years old at that time, and I was five, so she was only 15 years older than me, and she's still alive today. When she found out I knew how to read, she said, there is no reason for you to be at home. And so she nurtured that. And she kept telling me that's special. Uh, You know, your proficiency and how quickly you learn, that's special. And I remember I would do my work really quickly. And she would say, no, you're not going outside to recess. She said, because I know you know it and you're in a hurry. You're always in a hurry. So unless you do this neatly, you're not going to go play. And so, of course, I did it neatly so I could go play. And But she was teaching me. I'm not questioning your abilities. I'm not going to grade this. You did this too hurriedly so you could get out and play with your friends You're going to stay here and you're going to do it so it's legible and then you can go play. So I'm not going to even give you the first grade. Mm -hmm. And because of that kind of confidence, 
that kind of nurturing that I received. By the time I went to an integrated high school at 15, it was already solidly in my psyche that I had ability and that I was going to be successful in life and that I had the intellect to do whatever I wanted. So when other people tried to convince me mm-hmm. that somehow my intellect was less, right. um, I mopped the floor with them. Right. I mean, I was a, that's when I became a straight A student. And it was really funny because I'd never heard of a curve. Uh, you don't have curves in black school. Mm-hmm. So I remember this group of black white males came to me and said, you know, in our school, we have a curve. You're messing up our party time and we need you to score lower. And I stared at them like, no way in heaven. I'm going to do that. That's not what I said. Right. I don't know you. I don't like you. No. So what they started doing was actually stealing the test. They would show me the test. I would not touch it, not my fingerprints on it. I would give them the answers to the test. If there was one or two questions I didn't know, I'd look them up. And so we all made A's, but I would not do the curve. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I needed to dispel any myth that Black people were intellectually inferior. And I was able to do that because Black people had supported, nurtured, and encouraged me. Your entire life. Let me ask you a question. You said in high school, so that was your first, was that your first introduction to being in an integrated school was high school? Yep. Wow. 10th grade. I was stunned when people questioned my ability. I was absolutely stunned. Mm -hmm. Any did you experience any, um, I guess just maltreatment from, from teachers, from administrators back they then? Tried. Mm-hmm. They tried and, and I, I just mopped the floor with them. I won every award. Mm-hmm. I, I won elections. Um, I've always been a good speaker. There was a counselor, she was a black woman. And then there was an English teacher that I had had Mm-hmm. And one white woman in the AP class tried, told me that I was a C student by nature mm-hmm. and that she felt like I was putting more effort in and stressing myself. What she didn't know was that the white boys in the classroom were stealing her test and giving them to me. And I was giving them the answers mm-hmm. and they were writing down the answers because I wouldn't write on the test. And she was saying that they had superior intellect. And I'm sitting here looking at her thinking, No. So she actually changed the grading and she made an A 95 to 100. And they were angry with me again because they knew that she did that because I was the only black student in the AP class Mm -hmm. and it was to prevent me from getting an A. Mm -hmm. I, I never made less than a 98. Wow. So any kind of maltreatment um, was addressed. And my counselor, she was a black woman. She was my biggest advocate. I remember the first day of AP, all the black kids came into the office to get out. And I walked into, and she wasn't my counselor. Mm-hmm. Keep this in mind. I walked into the lobby to see my counselor. She got up out of her chair and she said, Darlena, come in here. And I walked in and she said, let me just tell you right now, here and now, the answer is no, you are not getting out of that class. You can come in here and you can cry, you can complain, you can do whatever you want to, but you are not getting out of that class. Mm-hmm. And I said, I haven't said anything yet. And she goes, I know you haven't. 
And I know that you, I know your family. I will call your mother. I went to high school with your elder brother. You are not getting out of that class. Mm -hmm. And whatever she says to you, you come to me mm -hmm. and I will deal with her. And she did. When she told me that I was a C student by nature, I went to my counselor and I told her exactly what she said. She went and talked to her before I got home. She called my mother. She called my older brother and said, I handled it. Wow. Mm. So for anybody listening who just, for some reason, if they don't have a clue yet as to why financial literacy is important and should be of, I think, number one importance to black people, what are you saying to black people as to why they need to be more invested in financial literacy? I am saying that you have been separated from your wealth. You for um, almost a thousand years, you've been separated for, from your earnings for 500 years. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of trauma there. If you look at the prison system, most of the reasons that black people are in prison has to do with money things wow. they did for money. If you look at any institution, the mental institutions, it's about what people, the stress that they've tried to uh, ameliorate due to money. You look at our relationships, the divorce rate, the lack of marriage rate, all of that has to do with money. So if we can get our money issues together, work together on money, if we can work together on how to utilize and leverage our resources, how to invest in our communities, how to hire each other, we're the only group of people who expect for someone else to hire us. Yes. We create these laws and they're wonderful. You want to have people accountable, but we are the only group of people who do not expect to hire their own. And we have to correct that. Mm. Which builds up, you know, we, there is this expectation, I think, in, in, in some communities, this waiting on white people who, who don't have our best interest at heart, who aren't thinking of us to build our communities back up. Who don't value us. Who don't and value us. Yes. Who don't value us and who don't respect us. Mm -hmm. And I have an after school program, St. Carrie Center Smart Academy. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, white groups in the government always wanting to come in. They want to do some study and they want to build leaders. And so they think that if they have an urban experience, that's what is generally called that later when they run for office or they're in some government post that they will be more effective. Mm -hmm. They have no respect mm -hmm. for the people who live in the community. They don't value the people in the community. So you don't need to be in the community. And I am not going to be that gatekeeper. Right. So I think that's really important that we understand that. And the only way we're going to get that respect is that we start coming together mm -hmm. and we demand it. The people who demand mm -hmm. are the people who get in this country. So when we come together as a group, mm -hmm. because if African-Americans were a country, we would be the 12th largest country in the world. Our GDP rivals that of Canada. Mm. And if you've ever been to Canada, you know that Canada has a lot more than we have. Mm -hmm. Our GDP, and I don't know if it's this year because of the pandemic, 
But our GDP has um, been greater than that of Mexico. So we have the clout, we have the power, we are 12 to 13% of this nation. And so we can make changes, we can make our financial institutions Mm -hmm. respectful of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole banking industry has been very abusive to black Americans in terms of, you know, denying us loans, and there are tons of research to support this. The, uh, The things I'm saying to you, a simple Google search will bring it all up. But if you search as a researcher, you look at how banks would not provide money in certain communities. And so certain other ethnic groups would get together. They would pool their money together mm-hmm. and then they would buy a business in the black community and they would thrive. That's why you see so many other ethnic groups And, you know, it's not just one ethnic group. You see so many ethnic groups, they make money in the Black community. Yes. And they, so if the, you know, and I have nothing against any other ethnic group, but if, you know, the Arabs can come and set up shop in the Black community and become wealthy and live outside the community and take the money outside of the community, then we can do that for our own community. But if we're going to the bank and the bank is saying that area is redlined and then they're pulling their funds together in order to be able to uh, buy that particular property or invest there, then we have to say we can pull our money together as well. And then we have to go to the banks and say, where did you get your money from? Let me be very clear. Everybody who who gets child support Everybody who gets any kind of government assistance now has to have automatic deposit. That's the law. Payroll checks are obsolete. That means that if you're paying child support, 3% of that child support goes to Bank of America. Hold on a minute. So there, wow. That's the fee. Yes. So Bank of America is getting money from the government and Bank of America is getting a processing fee. So that child is not getting those full funds. Right. When something goes through the court, so unemployment goes through the banks. It goes directly through the banks. You get a card. So the banks are getting that money. They're getting that money because of you. When you go to college and you get grants and you get loans, every bank has fees that are attached to that. So they're getting money from both ends. So then you have a right and you have a responsibility to say to those institutions, this is the money you're getting from me. Mm-hmm. So therefore you need to be responsive to my needs. And if you are not responsive to my needs, we have black banks. We will lobby for black banks to get those contracts and those banks will be responsive to our needs and we will make those banks bigger. Mm-hmm. And once you're armed with that kind of knowledge, then you can move forward. Right. So with everything you've said, my next question, well, first, it's, it's a comment, really. You know, when you talk about the different cultures that, that come into the Black community and with their restaurants, with their stores, whether it's gas stations or quick stops or... Um, Nail salons, nail salons, beauty supply stores, restaurants, uh, mm-hmm. corner grocery store. Their community pulls together money 
Yes. The land in, in Black communities, urban areas, whatever you want to call it, is generally very, very inexpensive. Right. They set up a business. They're given all kinds of concessions from the government as a new small business. They're given loans as a small business working in an impacted area. And we don't have access to those funds. We don't have access to those funds. There is also, um, at least from my experience, from what I've seen, they're, we're giving them our money and they're becoming wealthy and they're sending this money to their families, but there's there's no building up of the community. There's no relationship with us. There, there's, there's no valuing of, a, of our lives. I'm sorry, Darlena, go ahead. There's no investment in our community. No investment, no investment, yes. And let's talk about the school system. 80% of the teachers in public schools are white. Mm. When they teach, and, and over 50% of the children in our school systems now are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. They're disproportionately black because we cannot afford you know, the private schools. Mm-hmm. So they come to our communities and they work and they get money and then they take their money and they go back to their communities and they spend it. Right. So then our community doesn't benefit from having others come in. And if you look at every social program in this country, the people who do the work in those social programs, they'll say things like, oh, we're bringing $10 million to your community. What you're doing is you're bringing people to our community who get the $10 million and they take the $10 million and they go spend it elsewhere. Right. So the money isn't going into our community, it's going into the pockets of the people who come to our community. It is, it is. So when we think about children at an early age, this just, you know, in terms of literacy, math literacy, reading literacy, um, it's, I'm wondering about St. Harry's, right? Right. This, this. So we use money. Mm -hmm. We use money to teach place value. Mm -hmm. We use money to teach base 10. Mm -hmm. We need use money to teach all of the basic operations. And we use it for decimals as well as fractions because children have a vested interest and learning about money. They love handling the play money, even mm -hmm. though they know it's not real. Yep. They love being able to write the problem down, then checking with the play money and adding it back up. Mm -hmm. And also I think it's important that since we use cards, that most of the time there's not this connection between money and what, what they're spending and the medium that they're using for it. You just use a card. So then when you play like a restaurant game or grocery store game and there's a cashier there and there are these little plastic items and you have to go shopping and you have this play money and you see the actual exchange, the energy of exchange. You have to give them this amount of money. You have to give change back for this amount of money. So that's actually the transaction that you're doing on the card. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes more concrete. It becomes more real. And as you become an adult going out in the marketplace, you're looking at that and you're saying, oh my God, look at what that costs. You're not saying, oh, I'll just use my card because you realize that there's a finite amount of money on that card. And so therefore you have to budget and you have to use those resources better. So that's one of the advantages of introducing money 
as a medium. And you can e- introduce counting money as young as, you know, three years old. Mm-hmm. So that just, I mean, really, you just step right into my next point, because I was thinking I, I was a kid that was terrible at math. And it that fear kind of dominated my whole life, even into graduate school. I'm not good in math. <laughs> You know, and just that, but it started at, you know, our lives could totally change if we were introduced to money, holding it in our hands, right? Counting it, knowing, you know, what a dime, what a penny, all of these things. Absolutely. If you start at age two, two or three, you know, you, you work on it in preschool, then it's not this big, scary thing that leads you to failing math class and struggling through high school and struggling through college because you're familiar with it. And, and you're not, uh, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hired to teach research and evaluation. This was the last graduate class in the master's program. I noticed that the, after 20 minutes, the class was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And I put down my syllabus. And I said, what's wrong? And nobody said anything. So I started calling people's name. What have I said that caused you to have anxiety, be upset? What are your concerns? And one by one, I heard people saying, you're, you're, you're talking above our heads. I'm not good with numbers. I'm not good with math. You're talking about all these different concepts. And I don't know where to even begin. And so once we went around the room and everybody had a chance to share their fear of math and numbers, I barely passed statistics and you're throwing out numbers. I said, okay, okay. Well, so we got that out. Mm -hmm. Then I said to them, what area are you interested in? What do you wanna do? And so then people got very animated in terms of telling me what they wanted to do. And so with each one of those things, I said, I will show you how to use numbers Mm -hmm. in order to do this more effectively. Mm -hmm. And so we went around the room and when they saw that there was a, like a concrete direct correlation between what they wanted to do Mm -hmm. and how to use numbers to do that, the anxiety level in the room went down tremendously. Mm. And so that became the project. Mm -hmm. What kind of data that you need to collect? Data is nothing but numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have kids go around the classroom and I say, uh, what's your favorite ice cream? So they ask everybody what's their favorite ice cream. Then we make a chart of all the flavors and who voted for what. I said, that's data. Now you know, 50% of the classroom likes chocolate ice cream. So now we know that when we have our party or we have our celebration, we need to have enough ice cream for 50% of the people to enjoy ice cream. That's how you use data to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so we would do that with pizza. We would do that with tacos or whatever. And somehow that kind of interaction with data is something any child can do. I like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. How many people like peanut butter and jelly? Okay, we're gonna have some peanut butter and jelly. And then guess what? Oh, 75%, you're five years old and you're saying 75% of my class likes peanut butter and jelly. Right. Demystified that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I got into training elementary school teachers 
how to teach math because they have math anxiety too. And wow. they were using math as punishment. You know, you're acting out, I'm gonna make you do some math. Right. And I said, please stop that, please stop that. And so I had to create this whole new experience around math. I was amazed at the number of teachers that didn't budget and balance their checkbook every month or whatever bank account they had because they had this fear of math. Mm -hmm. That's where it starts. And I've talked to elementary school teachers and I've said to them, you know, if you put a physical activity in here, mm -hmm. if you bring in some measuring spoons, some cups, a pint container, cup container, gallons, that's how I taught my grandson how to do weights and measurements. Once he had filled up a spoon and we took eight spoons and filled up a cup and two cups to make it a pint and then two pints to make it a quart and then two quarts, you know, we went on and on till we went up to gallons. And I said, okay, let's sit down and do the problems now. He said, I don't need your help anymore. <laughs> because all of a sudden he knew the difference between a cup and a pint. He right. knew the difference between a pint and a gallon because he had filled those containers up. Mm -hmm. And so he'd seen it, he felt it. And uh, all of his senses were activated. That took me all of 15 minutes. So from then on, when it came to measuring liquids, mm -hmm. it was on it. Wow. So that those are the kinds of hands-on kinesthetic learning that we have to introduce around math. Mm -hmm. You know, and my favorite one with young women, I do some financial literacy workshops with middle school is giving them an identity, giving them a career, certain amount of money, and then having them choose in nine areas what they like. Mm -hmm. And the conversations we have around that, oh, yes, my particular person, you know, let's say Kim Evans. Mm -hmm. Kim Evans has a child, so she has to pay, you know, childcare. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. When I have a child, I'm not gonna pay childcare because my mom is gonna do that. So then I can go get my nails done. I can get my hair done. And I say, for purposes of this exercise, that job is worth a certain amount of money. So whether your mom does it or anybody else does it, we're going to pay for that particular exercise. They learn that if I have a car, I have to pay car insurance. And if it's something like a Camaro or a sports car, the car insurance is going to be more because they've collected data to show that people who buy those type of cars drive fast, have more accidents, and that has to be included in your budget. It's not just buying a car. And well, I'll pay cash for a car, so I won't have to get insurance. No, the law says that every person who drives has to have insurance. So this is the insurance rate. And when you start having those conversations mm -hmm. with girls in middle school, the lights start to go off. And one thing that we used to, uh, I always throw this problem in there, and it's something about maybe a bracelet or something. You know, the bracelet costs $300. And there's a sale. And now sometimes I'll make it more. I'll say the bracelet costs $800. Mm -hmm. And the bracelet is on sale for $300. Mm -hmm. And you only have another 180 in your account. What are you going to do? 10 times out of 10, they say, if the bracelet was $700, $800 and it's on sale, then I'm going to overdraw my account because I'm going to get another paycheck next month. Mm -hmm. And when I get another paycheck next month, I'll pay off the overdraft, I'll have the bracelet, and everybody's happy. Wow. And then I show them, if you pay off the $300, mm -hmm. it's going to take you about four years to do that. Mm. And when you're paying that 
$300 on payments, you will be paying as much as the original bracelet. Mm -hmm. So you didn't do yourself any favor. Right. And plus then you have the bank fees, mm -hmm. then you have, you know, the store fees. And so you wind up paying more money than what the bracelet is worth. Mm -hmm. And when you learn that lesson, you realize that every sale isn't good for you. Mm -hmm. And you learn that how much it costs you to borrow money. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, it's like gambling. Mm -hmm. And so then you learn, hmm, if I don't have the money, maybe I just need to wait because that bracelet or whatever it is, there's something else that's going to come up that's going to be really nice. Mm -hmm. And then I can buy it then. And those are the conversations. You don't wait until you're married and then you're arguing with your husband about the bracelet. You have that conversation at 11 and 12 years old. That is such an important point, not just regarding making wise decisions on how you spend your money and, and how many people buy things, they charge it. And they are, you know, when you think about it, they charge it and then they're spending more because of interest and all of that, <laughs> more than what the thing is worth. <laughs> and so. And that's how the merchant or the credit card company, that's how they make their money. Right. And so they're, they're becoming wealthy because you want instant gratification. Right. Right. And that's, but when we've been separated historically from our money, and I will admit even now today, Mm -hmm. um, I track my money and my spending, mm -hmm. but there are times when I check my account and I'm still surprised it's there because I was a compulsive spender. Mm -hmm. And my issue was if I don't spend it, somebody's going to come along and take it. No, that's not true. Right. If I don't spend it, it's still there when I get back. Right. Yeah. It's, um, and you, I mean, again, you bring up another important point. I think about my early, you know, being in the military at 18 and my early twenties, every time I'd go to Victoria's Secret or Dillard's or any store, Old Navy, it didn't matter what store. And they said, do you want, you know, you could, you could save 30% today if you get the credit card. And I always got the credit card. And then I ended up in debt because <laughs> then I, I'm buying all of this stuff because I think in my mind and my young ignorant mind, oh, I've got free money because I've got this credit card. Then I'm in debt. Then, then bill collectors are calling because I'm not paying the stuff. And it took years for me to become debt free. Absolutely. Yeah. And what freedom, anybody listening, there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. It's almost like Harriet Tubman has came and led you to freedom. And yeah. I use uh, Harriet Tubman as my analogy, because I will tell you, that black people come to the money, black and money recovering, kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. It's like you are dispelling their myths and you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I got my first credit card at 17. I liked the feeling mm -hmm. of being able to buy something when I wanted to buy it because I'm willful. Mm -hmm. And then I got a job at a credit uh, bureau, a credit um, authorization center of the department store that I work for to find out what I had to say to get more credit. And then that wasn't enough for me because, you know, I'm on to something. I got a job at a bank to see how long it took for money to clear the bank. Mm -hmm. 
And so if I needed money at the end of the month, I just had an account at more than one bank and I would write checks from one bank to another bank and just float the check. Mm-hmm. And so I had some horrible, terrible habits mm-hmm. because I felt deprived. Mm-hmm. I felt like the world wasn't a safe place and that I had to run faster to stay ahead and never thought that holding on to my money and saving my money was really my saving grace. And now that I'm out of debt, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting because um, my credit score is like 822. Mm-hmm. And so people send me credit cards and I get emails from people chastising me and scolding me that you have this amount of money open to buy and you're not using it. Like it's un-American, like you're unpatriotic. It's like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you want to go in debt? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This is the American way. Right. Uh, And you need to go into debt. And Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this thinking this is triggering. And for someone, they're telling me the advantages Mm -hmm. that getting debt, then you can have more debt and you can have more stuff. And and it's just insane. But that advertising and that marketing around whatever it is you want, you can have it now and just use my shiny, pretty silver, bronze, platinum card, black platinum, whatever, card and you can live the life you can buy a boat with this card right how about that you don't need money so it it is very tempting and i think that's uh the value of the recovery spaces Mm -hmm. because we can go in those spaces Mm -hmm. and we can talk about our family history with money we can talk about our trauma we can talk about the terrorism you know my father told me that before I was, we, you know, he had children, that he was hours away from a hangman's noose several times. Mm. Because white people in the surrounding area found out that he was making money selling alcohol. Mm. And so they were going to hang him, lynch him, to make an example for any other black man who was trying to be an entrepreneur. And fortunately, and I've learned this later because my father never gave credit, but his father was a Mason. And he said someone always accidentally told him. And when I was talking to another black man and he said, was your father a Mason? I said, no, my father wasn't a Mason, but his father was. And he felt like it never did him any good. He said, the reason your father got that information was because his, his father was a Mason and Masons look out for each other. They're a secret society and they look out for their children. So there was no coincidence and your nor, nor accident mm-hmm. that your father was warned that he was going to be lynched that night. Yeah. And he was able to set up a system to pack up the car and leave at dusk because the Klan generally came after midnight when everybody was asleep. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So that's why these spaces are so important just so we can deconstruct that trauma and we can rebuild and be supportive. But I'm going to tell you that the grace, when you start talking about black people making more money Mm -hmm. and confronting the system, when you start talking about us getting out of debt, Mm -hmm. it's not what happens to you. That's important. It's how you respond to that. And so when you start saying it's about awareness, it's about acceptance, and then it's about action. 
So you have the awareness in terms of knowing your history. You have the acceptance that it happened and there's nothing you can do about it. It's in the past. And then you take action in the present to create something different. And that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where uh, Black people generally balk because it's like all this horrible stuff has happened to me. How do you expect me to, you just want me, let me to forget about it? Do you want me just to forgive them? You don't forgive for you, you uh, for them. You forgive for you. You let it go. It's done. And then you take action so that your present isn't a repetition of your past. Oh, that is so powerful. The awareness, the acceptance, and the action. That's 12 step. That's 12. So, so again, you're freaking phenomenal. And you just like intuitively, that was my next question. And we're just bobbing. So I love it. And <laughs> um, because in December, uh, a beautiful, wonderful, amazing black woman who I won't name here, but you know her. She sends me some information and, and says, Tasha, you know, I thought about you, you know, why don't you, you know, here's, here's some information on uh, Under Earners Anonymous. And, and then she sent me information on Debtors Anonymous. And um, so I started attending meetings and, and, and when you talk about recovery and how we're dealing with our stuff with money, we're dealing with our stuff with time, we're dealing with our trauma. Yes. It was like, ooh, like bricks were falling off and being in black spaces. So, so I don't know, I could talk about that for an hour, I won't, but I would like for you because you created Black Money and Recovery, Black Indebtors Anonymous and Black and Under-Earners, Under-Earners Anonymous, could you please speak about that? Okay. Um, I knew that I had dysfunction around money. I knew that when I had a crisis, I could earn money, I could focus. I knew I invested money and I started investing very early. I knew, you know, I, I bought my first house before I was 30, but I also knew that I sabotaged and I gave money away. And there was always this guilt and shame that I had more than somebody else in my family or more than somebody else around me. And so I was volunteering my time and I was trying to kind of make up for, for that. Mm -hmm. And so when I came in the program, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's like I would take two steps forward and one step back. And then I would take one step forward and two steps back. And for me, there was like two incidents. There was this young man. Uh, he and I were earning the same. Um, uh, no, I was actually earning more money than he was in 1998. And I gave him some ideas. I mean, he picked my brain for a year because I was going to be going to um, actually foster care social work for myself. I was going to do that. So I was sharing ideas with him and he was implementing them. Mm. And I saw him again in 2000, I saw him like 10 years later and he was generating $10 million a year on the ideas that I gave him. Mm -hmm. And he was able to do that because he focused on himself. Mm -hmm. He wasn't out trying to save the world. He wasn't focusing on anybody else. He wasn't volunteering his time for anybody else. He was simply building his business. Mm -hmm. 
And my business, which I still had, I was supplementing by taking consulting contracts and then donating 20%, writing grants for other people and subcontracting. And I said, what is wrong with this picture? Mm Um, in 1998, I also went to a writer's conference in Maui. I joined the Writers Association. I gave people all these wonderful ideas, and then they wrote bestsellers. And my books that I wrote are still on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And I said, what is wrong with this picture? So when I walked into these spaces at 2012, I had been in the relationship program a couple of years. I'd gotten some recovery there. But in terms of my money, I was as dysfunctional as ever. So when I came into these rooms, I couldn't breathe because I was hearing so much about how you get in and debt and out of debt and in and debt, and then how you uh, set a certain contract fee. And then you sit there and you talk yourself down because you think of what you owe, you think of your responsibilities, and then you accept less and find out that someone else who is less qualified, less competent, that has to come to you to figure out how to do this is making more money. Mm-hmm. And you know that you settled. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to get out of that. So I started go- listening to the meetings, getting on a meeting every day. And I would hear stuff and I had so much anxiety. There were days I felt like I couldn't breathe, that the air was being sucked out of the room. And I would force myself because I felt my throat closing to share for three minutes Mm -hmm. and just let people know I was in the right place. And so the first tool that I used was to stop volunteering, stop volunteering for other people's organization put my time and attention into my own business. The other tool I started using was writing down what I spent. And I found out that I took people out to lunch that never took me out to lunch. That I gave away, I would get like two spa coupons and I would feel like I should share one of the spa coupons with someone else as opposed to getting the two massages myself. So I had all of these relationships that were non-reciprocal. And I started to let those relationships go. And I started using the steps and the tools. And the first time I went to a DA meeting in person, um, I wanted to read the newcomer's brochure and the woman snapped at me and I dropped it. And so then she uh, realized how abrupt she was. And she said, "Um, you you know, I didn't mean to snap at you, but we don't have free literature. You have to go to the website and buy it. And I just wanted you to know that that wasn't free. And I thought, what is it? And I said, may I read it? And she said, yes. And I said, what is it about me that makes this woman think that I need to steal a brochure? But I thought that's her issue, not mine. I didn't feel welcome in that environment, but I wasn't going to let her deny me the use of those tools. Mm -hmm. So I started attending meetings on the phone. And I would attend a meeting every day, listen, sometimes share, not share. And through that process of using the tools, going through the steps, dealing with my own trauma, letting the memories come up of times that I have been told that um, I was told one time that I was the most qualified candidate over the phone, but that middle-aged white women would never take direction from a young black woman. And so they had given the job to a young white man because they were going to train him to be their supervisor. Mm -hmm. And so 
those things started to come up for me. When I started to get out of that, mm-hmm. I realized that I had to bring my whole self, that there were so many microaggressions. There were so many times when I would sit and think, do I really want to fight this battle today with racism? And I was hesitating to show up, but I'd have to talk myself down like I was in a hostage situation. And someone had planted the seed about having black money recovery meetings. And I just decided I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that I was slowing down on the paying of the debt. And I thought, because I'm afraid if I pay off all the debt, I'm going to get back in debt again. And I never want to be back in debt again. And I thought if I don't deal with race and economic issues and be able to share on those without people being defensive and race lighting me by trying to get me to question myself, uh, you know, playing the devil's advocates or let's just say, you know, whatever. And we've we've heard all of the anti-blackness in the rooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to be able to keep this. And I was talking to an action partner and she said, I'll help you start it. And it took me talking and her saying it three times, I'll help you start that for me to realize, oh my God, this is it. This is the opening of the way. So she helped me start the group and she only stayed a month. She found the rooms too uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And by that time, other people heard about it Mm -hmm. and they were coming. And then I thought, okay, um, my under earning my negotiating. I'm a very, very good negotiator when there's a crisis. I'm I'm at the top of my game. But if I don't have a crisis, Mm -hmm. I would capitulate. I would settle. And I thought, nope, can't do that no more. And I realized that I needed to be better. As my organization grew, as I focused on serving Black children and Black families, Black children, especially poor Black children, are low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And everybody takes a swing at them right. because they don't have anybody to advocate for them or to protect them. And I thought, if I'm creating these spaces, I need to be strong. I need to be powerful in order to protect them. Because if they can attack me mm-hmm. and destroy me, they can destroy them. And I'm not going to let that happen. And so I started Black and UA. And I actually had cataract surgery. And my eye was really traumatized and I couldn't do anything because I couldn't see and I was having headaches. So all I could do was do my breath work and meditate Mm -hmm. and I couldn't read. And that's something I love to do because uh, my eyes, I couldn't see, I had to heal my eyes. And I started other black groups and each time I was totally amazed at the number of people who showed up. Mm-hmm. I just could not believe that this amount of people recognized. And I was so happy that so many of them were younger. And that uh, that really elevated me because I thought, sweetheart, if you don't have to wait as long as I did to accept that you got an issue and right. you start dealing with this now, your children are going to benefit. Your grandchildren are going to benefit. So I started to spin these groups off. I would start them. Any uh, resistance from the overall parent in a uh, group, I would uh, fight that battle. And then I would uh, allow somebody else to step up and take over. And so that's what we're doing. So we have about a dozen different groups in the two programs now. 
And uh, we're about to start it as a nonprofit. We're going to put up a website. We're going to put up interviews so that other Black people that are suffering with this malady mm-hmm. understand that it's not you. It's not you. Is Black Money in Recovery a 12-step program? Uh, Black Money in Recovery is kind of like the umbrella organization that uses 12-step programs. Okay. So any money program that's a 12-step program, we're looking at creating Black spaces mm-hmm. where Black people can come together. So it doesn't matter. We're not married to anybody. So we, we can even do something about gambling. There are a lot of Black people yeah. that are gamblers. Uh, there's compulsive spending. You know, any money. Sex addicts, all of that can, if it's for Black people and it's 12 steps, it falls under that. Is that, am I understanding if it's related to money, if it's, it's related, related to understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want to be able to create these safe spaces where Black people can share their experience. And mm-hmm. they can come and say, you know, my mother was an alcoholic or my mother was a drug addict or, right. you know, my mother sold her body in order to get money for drugs. And, and the people in the room don't judge you. Right. You know, we don't beat up on anybody that's injured. We're there for you again for you to raise your awareness, mm-hmm. for you to accept what's happened, it's over, it's past, and for you to take action today to create a different present. So for anybody wondering, is Under Earners Anonymous, is UA right for me? And just as simple as you can put it, can you tell listeners what is Black and UA? Who is that group for? That 12-step program. I would say to go to the UA website mm-hmm. and look at the symptoms of under-earning and see if any of those symptoms fit you. Yep. I would tell you to come to six Black and UA meetings and listen to the stories mm-hmm. and the shares and see if that information fits you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you can make a decision. But if you're not earning what you want to earn, mm-hmm then the tools there would be very helpful to help you do that. Absolutely. And then you've got Black and DA that specifically, again, that deals with money. It deals with money and it deals with chaos. And I think that's one of the major issues that we have to talk about when you have chaos in your life. And chaos can even be somebody in your family that's involved in destructive behavior And then you have to get up in the middle of the night and go see about them. And so then you show up at work um, unprepared the next day, or you're creating bills around trying to, um, you know, help someone close to you. So having that chaos around money, having that disorder, not knowing how much money you have, not knowing what your expenses are, not knowing when taxes are due, or if you've, uh, taken out enough for taxes. All of those things are very important. Thank you for explaining that. When I and when I started with the 12-step program, it was, one, it felt like the bricks were falling off, but it also felt a little bit scary, like, wow. I've never been in a space with, with all Black people from all, literally all over the world. All over the world. And there's so much commonality in our experiences growing up. There's so much tied to 
how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we show up in relationships, how we show up in our, you know, in our jobs and, and how it relates to money, how it relates to trauma, early childhood trauma. Absolutely. And even our responsibility to others. Yes. Uh, Because one of the things, and this happened with me, as soon as I, you know, we call it the black tax. As soon as I started to earn money, Mm -hmm. then I'm expected to help someone else in the family who doesn't have resources. And there's nothing wrong with helping others, but you actually have to have your own house in order first. Right. And so then from that, just like putting the face mask in the airplane on yourself and then putting it on the next person so that you can survive that and you can take care of them afterwards. So understanding that and many cultures, it's like, why is that even a consideration in our culture? Our survival depended on us being interdependent. People were trying to kill us. And so we had to learn whatever skills we had to use, whatever resources were available. So we didn't have time to kind of build prudent reserves when we were trying to save somebody from being lynched or we were trying to save somebody from being burnt out of their house. There's no do-over with death. So that commonality of our experiences and being able to say, okay, you know, we're aware of it. We accept it but let's create this new reality together and let's move forward as a more healed group of people and we'll be able to handle whatever comes up. I love that. Um, With 12 steps, with being a mental health therapist and you're a psychologist, um, I don't know if you have an opinion one way or the other on this, I I feel like you would, but for, for me, being a therapist and recommending to my clients and friends, join this 12 step, you know, let me tell you about black NUA. Let me tell you about the black NDA. Yes. I see the 12 step program as a kind of an essential part of your, your healing toolkit. Absolutely. And I think that the importance of therapy cannot be understated Mm -hmm. Uh, with trauma, with crises, going to a therapist and having a skilled and trained person help you unpack that whose objection whose objective is invaluable the skill and training of a therapist is invaluable when i first came into 12 step i didn't even tell anybody i was a psychologist because i left that at the door because when you go into a 12 step support group you're all equal you're experts in the room You're all equal. You're all on equal fitting. You're all turning it over to God. And I think it's very important that we accept that, that in a 12-step group, everybody's equal. Everybody's looking to God as opposed to looking to anybody else in the room. Right. And then once you realize that there's nobody there governing, you can take responsibility for yourself. You can reflect on your experiences, share your experience, strength, and hope, and then know that this is between me and God and every person has a relationship with God. We are all equals. I'm not responsible for anybody else. I'm only responsible for myself. So for me, 12 step program is the next step out of that where you support each other in a community. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to go out into the world and be able to utilize 
what you've learned in therapy, 12 step and show up as your healed self because you're gonna meet and encounter and interact with a lot of unhealthy people. But if you have a layman's group, that's a support group. If you have a therapist that's supporting you on your journey to mental health and, and wellness, and that person is a trained professional, you have a team and that's what you want to end the isolation and have your support team. I love that, especially the, the ending where you, you said to end that isolation, because oftentimes when we're existing in the world, dealing with our problems, whether it be with, with money or whatever it is, we're dealing with it with a, a lot of shame, a lot of secrecy, and not wanting anybody to know how damaged we, we are and how much chaos we actually have in our lives. But the beautiful thing about 12 Steps specifically really black and, and DA and black and UA is that there's no shame in the room because we're all, like you said, we're all equal. You know, oftentimes I'm the person, I've got to be the expert. I've got to, I've got to have the answers, but in 12 steps, I don't have to, I just can, I can, I'm allowed to admit I am powerless over this. I need help. This is where I'm at. This is the problem that I'm having. And everybody in that room understands what I'm going through because they're going through something very similar. Absolutely. You leave it at the door. You leave yes. all your professional titles at the door. Mm -hmm. And it takes some people a minute because that professional title, that identity is uh, something that they've hid behind. Right. And then for you to learn that in those spaces, I don't need to hide. Right. So I'm being really conscious of time and I promised an hour, but obviously we've gone over that. It's gone by so quickly. Um, I've got one more question and then we're going to get to a couple of fun questions. Okay. So for a parent that is listening and they're interested now in financial literacy for, for their children or even for themselves, is there, is there a book or a website or anything that you would say here, start, start here or read this thing. I think this is helpful. Anything that you would recommend? I think um, there are a number of books available. Mm -hmm. um, however, I would suggest that you start with what's free. Love it. And what's free is on the website. So get the free literature on the website, attend some meetings. You know, if you have a problem with money, don't start by spending more money. Mm. Get access to the free resources, mm -hmm. build your money, and then as you start to build your money and learn and grow, then access some of the paid uh, resources. And they have brochures. They have uh, different people in the program have written books. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll probably be writing a book about this experience, starting with Black and Money Recovery and uh, encouraging other Black people to um, take care of their money. So start with the website, go online, look up, you can Google, Google is free under Earners Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, go you can there. You me at blackandmoneyrecovery.gmail.com mm -hmm. uh, and we will have a website mm -hmm. by the time this broadcast hits the air at blackandmoneyrecovery.org. Wonderful. So fun questions. When you want to listen to some really good music, maybe you want to move your body a little bit. What music are you listening to? I'm actually listening to a lot of the British soul artists. 
Okay. Someone uh, told me about a couple. So I listened to um, ah, uh, Emmy Sandy. Emily, yes, she's got an amazing voice. I love her. She's amazing. There's, I think, Mahalia. Mm -hmm. There's also, uh, (laughs) there are a bunch of them. But once you start listening, Mm -hmm. um, you know, why me, not her, Jacob? um, I can't even remember his last name. uh, Slow up on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So once I started listening to some of the soul artists, Mm-hmm. I love the storytelling in music and I listen to a lot of classical music mm-hmm. and I've discovered the first African-American woman who had her music played by a symphony. Mm-hmm. So I've started to listen to her. Mm-hmm. I've started to listen to some of the black composers who were buried. And now um, if you look up the black Mozart or, you know, the black Beethoven, you find out that they had black contemporaries who were not allowed to perform uh, at the court unless they were with Mozart or with Beethoven or behind them and their music got stolen and now their stories are being uh, told and they actually Bridgerton, you know, the series about them. So um, that's what I'm listening to. Awesome. And who makes, who or what makes you laugh? Um, I have to say, I get a lot of joy from watching uh, Black people grow. Mm. And even seeing you, I was watching you kind of blossom and evolve. I was telling somebody, I feel like I have all these superheroes. And so, you know, it's like Wonder Woman over here. And Wonder Woman's saying to me, you know, how do I lasso this invisible airplane? And I'm saying, look, Wonder Woman, I can't lasso invisible airplanes. I can't even see them. But I'm here for the show to cheer you on when you do it. And, you know, we can go to the gym and work out together so you can build your upper body strength. But I'm taking a great deal of joy of just watching other younger Black people and even older Black people be comfortable in their own bodies, enjoy life, watching kids be kids and play Mm -hmm. um, Black kids and not worry about, you know, adult kinds of affairs, just being able to create that. I do a lot of work in Africa, being able to go over and just relax and sit down and talk to people. Um, I'm enjoying that. Wonderful. And maybe this is the same question. I don't know, but who who or what inspires you, inspires your work, inspires you just in your day-to-day life? Um, people like, uh, I listen to a lot of black biographies and autobiographies and I'm discovering people every day that have these tremendous stories that I had never heard of because it's never told in our textbooks, but people like Fannie Lou Hammer yes. and that you have to have greens on your own table or you're not going to be a good advocate. People like, you know, Marva Collins, the educator, Mm-hmm. Uh, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, reading about their lives mm-hmm. and the obstacles that they overcame and knowing that, you know, they, they, they were able to pass that on. Right. Love it. This interview has just really been amazing. I've learned a lot. I feel so honored that I get to be the first person interviewing you for a podcast. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I won today. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, so, and I just know this is 
episode is just going to be a blessing to so many people. Um, and I just want to say thank you for being here with me. You're welcome. And I have to tell you that I do really admire and respect your journey. And I think that in this podcast, your energy and your spirit comes through and is such a generous spirit. So thank you for being you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on When We Speak. Please make sure you visit the website at TashaHunterAuthor.com. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I would appreciate leaving a rating. It will help others find the show more easily and hopefully be a benefit to them as well. 